Last year, I had um, goldfinches and other finches come into the front garden for the seed heads on the dandelion. And it was beautiful to watch. It's the first time it's ever happened. Hello, my name is Kashka and welcome to Plant Voices podcast from Tapewood Community Garden, where we tell local stories about gardening, food, nature and climate change. Can keeping our garden lawns a bit longer really make a difference for our precious wildflowers and mini-beasts, which are disappearing from our wider landscapes? In this episode, we are exploring this very question, as well as the pleasures of rewilding our green spaces. Partners in Fife's Climate Friendly Garden project talk about why and how they took part in Plant Life's No More May campaign. And we talk to a botanical expert from Dundee University. You will also hear snippets from our very own Tayport Community Garden, where we counted our lawn wildflowers for Plant Life's Every Flower Counts last week to learn what effect No More May has had there. Let's kick it all off with introductions. I'm Angie and I am working with Climate Action Fife and Plant as a Climate Friendly Gardens Coordinator. So working with um, individuals and groups across Fife to look at how we can garden in a more climate conscious manner. I'm based in Tayport, sunny Tayport. Hi, I'm Pauline Normand. Um, I'm one of the gardeners coordinators for Clear in Buckhaven at the Growing Space. I coordinate the volunteers and try to get them to do the gardening using our latest knowledge on climate-friendly planting. And I'm Jane and I'm involved in food production for Clear. So I do a bit of growing and quite a bit of processing and cooking. And Pauline and I are both beekeepers as well. Clear was initiated about 11, 12 years ago. And the acronym is Community-Led Environmental Action and Regeneration. We have extensively worked in Buckhaven only, but we've now got a second community garden in Methyl area now. We're also very much involved in local area tree planting, and we have many, many, many orchards. It's all about regeneration and and reclaiming and rewilding all this area and trying to get a lot of people who are not motivated at all to come back in and do this type of work. And we're also trying to introduce... Um, really delicious local produce. So we sell a lot of the produce from the gardens in our shop, um, fresh, and any that isn't fresh, we make into preserves and juices and so on. Uh, So we've got Clear Backhaven and plants here. So we're both partners in the Climate Friendly Gardens project. Is there anybody else involved? Yes. Eats Rosyth, Greener Kirkcaldy, and the project looks at how we could explore community gardens, how we can work together, maybe provide training and support, Uh, not just for new gardens, but maybe the experienced gardener too. Lots of events to engage people in climate awareness as well. And, And lots of diverse events too. So maybe things that are just 
a wee bit more unusual. So we're here to talk about Normal May campaign by Plant Life. Can you explain what that's all about? In general, it's a national campaign and it looks at leaving our lawns or part of our lawns, leaving the lawnmower in the shed and letting nature grow. And uh, why would they encourage people to be lazy about their lawns? So at this time of year, early in spring, you've got all these wonderful, rich nectar producing flowers popping through. And then all of a sudden we get the lawnmower out and go whoosh (laughs) and cut them all away. So it's to encourage this uh, nectar rich food to grow to support pollinators who are reducing the numbers globally. So who wants to who wants to count some flowers? Yeah, I'll count flowers. Cool. In terms of where this has come from is we're trying to mitigate for, for the loss that we've seen in, in the wider landscape since the Second World War. My name is Kevin Frediani. I'm the curator of plants and gardens at the University of Dundee um, Botanic Gardens and I also look after the university grounds here. I have a background in both plant science horticulture and conservation management over the last 30, 35 years. We've lost um, something like seven and a half million hectares of of, uh, meadows, which have gone under the plough, gone into short-term lays, which don't have the same quality of wildflower mix. They're more about growing grass and clover for animal productivity than they are about the diversity that they support. I've just been reading about Angus, Over the last 300 years, we've seen a landscape that was full of um, mixed farmland where there was animals and and crops being grown. But 50 percent of the of the crop harvest was weed. So uh, these are annual wildflowers that we would have found in in the in the arable settings. But within our uh, meadows, there would have been more flower diversity and there would be grass diversity and if you look at a field today you just see green grass and that's the way we think of the um of our landscapes but they haven't been that way and our diversity hasn't our biodiversity in the uk hasn't grown up with that landscape evolved with that landscape um so what we've lost in the rural areas with um plant life are trying to encourage individuals in their private settings in your gardens and the grounds around the, the houses and flats that you look after to um, leave those areas that you would usually mow to allow space for the wildflowers, what used to be called weeds, as a plant growing in the wrong place. But in this context, in the right place, allowing it to um, flower, that to try to address some of that reduction and see these wildflowers come back in to support pollinating insects, to support insect diversity, which is at the bottom of the food chain, is then fed on by birds, by bats, by mammals, and it goes up so we actually see um, an abundance of wildlife in our landscapes again. And again, because there's less wildflowers around, we've seen the the Scottish government uh, estimates a 51% decline since 1980 uh, in Scotland alone. And there's a... there's a, wow, a that, is that insects? Insects, abundance, wow. yeah, abundant, 51%. But we're seeing certain species hit more harder than others because it relies on uh, habitat. There's also uh, insects have specialist niches. So, again, if you're looking at the things like deadwood habitat, there's uh, saprozylitics. There's a, a particular concern with that group 
because we're finding that their habitat has been removed. Uh, I mean, there's uh, again, if you think about that in terms of uh, um, the amount of deadwood that used to be in a woodland compared to how much is in a commercial plantation, there's something like 95% of the deadwood is removed from that habitat just by us having intensive agricultural practices. Wildflowers, I guess, are just a, um, one piece of the puzzle, or maybe the prettier one, because dead, uh, deadwood, rotting wood, might not be as attractive um, uh, to people. Uh, but equally important, equally important. Who wants to uh, hold on to the recording sheet? I will. I will. Uh, that can be my job. I'll go around and what people say. Uh, you mentioned pollinators or pollinating insects. Can you tell us what that what that's about? Well, a pollinator is anything that helps carry pollen from the male part of the flower, the stamen, to the female part of the same or another flower. That's a stigma. Um, without pollination, the plants can't produce seeds, and without seeds, they can't grow. If you come over here, we've got a randomizer rock, or you can pick your own randomizer rock. Yeah, well, most people will think about pollinators as the, the, the humble honeybee and um, while we've got wildflowers in our in our lawns which can support honeybees like birdsfoot trefoil or we've got foxgloves in our borders uh, or white clover um the uh, there are also uh, pollinate pollinated flowers that butterflies visit there's um there's actually a whole range of um pollinators out there five years we've realized just how significant they are in terms of supporting pollination of a whole range of plants from things like carrots that are important for us as a crop through to things like uh, fennel or um, a garnish for your uh, cooking at home but but also one of the oldest pollinating uh, insects in terms of uh, uh, diversity of things like um, water lilies and uh, magnolias is beetles so uh, poll pollinators are really important because without pollinators, we don't get the seeds, and without the seeds, we don't get the plants of tomorrow. Okay, so one, yeah, one speedwell. There's another one here, to see. I think it's common speedwell or something like that. Jamanda? Yeah. Jamanda. Yeah. That's two. So, and Albert Einstein reckoned that without pollinators, we'd only have four years to live. Is that because, uh, um, obviously, plants are our source of food so it's it's really yeah, the humanity is not absolutely. going to survive without the food that the pollinators yeah. help Indeed. produce 25 26 27 i would say 28 so what are they called these ones the little you know it's the time, time. yeah so that's number three isn't it 29 oh that's why it was why did you decide to promote no more may this month as a part of climate friendly gardens because i think you put your heads together and decided this is something to that's a good idea um to do across a partnership well initially for the bees we were thinking of the bees we're always looking at um maintaining enough flowers nearby the bees to feed them to sustain them and they all well they also they pollinate all our fruit trees and fruits in the garden but also just to increase the diversity mm -hmm. of, of plants available and we all these flowers are just beautiful <laughs> it's just beautiful yeah so there's also the plus point of actually not actually using lawnmowers for yeah. your saving fuel i just think the importance of nature in itself too when you think about um, even last year when we were all in lockdown, 
the value of our local green spaces and areas to, to everybody, you know, and people beginning to reconnect with that. And I just think that that's such an important part of climate awareness is, is reconnecting with the nature in itself. Because once we reconnect to nature, the more we understand about it, the more we want to care about it. So it's like connecting to your own true nature through nature. And it's such a, you know, just taking, it's like the slow movements, slow eating or slow, you know, just slowing down, keeping the lawnmower away, sitting in the garden with your cup of tea and, and feeling and seeing and being part of the environment, what's happening. Yes. And then through that, maybe developing a relationship that wants that that makes you want to help protect what's what's there. Mm. What's there? I, I must admit, prior to being involved in calf, I uh, I didn't mow my own lawn very much at home, but the garden lawn was the community garden lawn was kept really, really short all the time. Um, one volunteer in particular, you know, is heartbroken this month because he can't mow the lawn. <laughs> but, <laughs> horrible. <laughs> but at the same time, today, for instance, he's out with um, clippers, with shears, and he's just happily going along the edges no lawnmower at all. And he's having a grand time. And he's coming back and he's telling me, oh, the tulips are here. This is here. This is here. And we actually saw a hedgehog as well this morning, which was really, really Um, And whether it's just because the grass, because it hasn't been mowed this year at all, actually, because of the weather, whether it's because the grass is really particularly long, it's got the hedgehog's got somewhere to actually hide in. I'm not sure, but um, I did tell him to stamp hard before he starts cutting, just in case. We mm. And there's certainly plenty of slugs and snails for it. So hopefully, hopefully, um, it, there's more than just pollinators um, surviving as well in our grass. I have to I'm say, I'm, I'm, um, I noticed that I went for a walk yesterday and I was sort of looking around the... Um, all the public lawns and the green spaces in Tayport, and I spotted lots of birds feeding at the moment, and, and I think earthworms are on the menu, but you know, it was a group of starlings and, and sparrows and um, other birds that were just sort of very quickly catching probably some insects hidden among the grass. So it's uh, with this wet weather and, and the longer grass, because the council's been lazy cutting the lawns, thankfully. <laughs> any seed heads just now as well and all the little um, flowers. So the birds might also just be attracted to the insects that are in the, the seed heads mm. or down to seed seeds heads. as well. I saw, I saw some um, goldfinches as well and, and bullfinch. Mm picking at the um, uh, dandelion head with, with the seeds. So I don't know if it was getting some fluff for the nest or whether it was just getting the seeds because, yeah. So I, I chewed into the lawns this month because of the no more May and started sort of looking at all the details because it's such an easy thing to miss, isn't yes. it? Because it's such yeah. a, you know, 
just basic green background to our lives. Absolutely. I think it also helps us, you know, shift away from that traditional must have a lawn that's, you know, mowed and looking like a bowling green. Yeah, you know, and I think if you just and and some people may struggle with that, and fair enough, because you know that's we've we've had that traditional way of looking at it for a long, long time. But even if it's just encouraging, like swathes that you leave um, uncut, and then just watching what you what what appears and what can happen within that. Mm. Um, and the seed heads last year um, down my path, I always leave the all the plants to come through as well. And I was saying to Kashka before we came on here, sometimes there's that, oh, isn't that amazing? And then there's a bit of, oh, that shouldn't be poking through the path. And you kind of struggle with it yourself. But then I tend to like the wild look of it all. And last year I had um, goldfinches and other finches come into the front garden for the seed heads on the dandelion. And it was beautiful to watch. It's the first time it's ever happened. Yeah, so there's definitely lots of wildlife watching benefits uh, for humans, but obviously for other wildlife as well. And it's called a cuckoo flower on the chart as yeah, well. It should be, yeah. yeah. So that's one. Oh, but open. Four. Oh, there's one here, but not quite oh. open. Four. We've got so many in this. Um, I never realised there were so many. We always cut yeah. it much, much earlier, and that's oh. a, um, mm -hmm. a precious one because oh. it, it feeds the white tip. Uh, orange to butterflies, um, uh, caterpillars. So, you know, I think you sort of said something about um, just not mowing, you know, community garden lawn. Is there anything else that you um, are planning to do in other spaces? Well, we're actually, we've been sowing some wild flower mm. seeds and planting seedlings of them in various different areas, in gardens and in parks and on the foreshore in Buckhaven. What um, kind of uh, plants are they? Pretty standard yeah. um, wildflowers. Yeah. Uh, Bridgefoot yeah. trefoil, scabious, self heel, oxhide daisies. So all native wildflower perennial yeah. type yeah. Um, flowers. And is that, um, do you have a good supply of, of these seeds? Can people get something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure where we got them actually. Scotia seeds were oh, okay. the original um, supplier, and year on year, um, the staff in the methyl garden they've propagated and, and planted up new seeds from the from the flowers from the year before. So we we do have quite a sort of succession of seeds, wildflower seeds. Um, which is grand. Uh, we did buy in some for the extensive new area at Savoy Park, but most of it's actually been grown by ourselves. That's fantastic. That sounds like you can sustain a sort of this wild garden and, and yeah. Yeah. once you have something in place quite easily. Uh, what about um, in your own homes? I think Pauline, you said you never mow your lawn. I, I didn't mow my lawn very much at all and what absolutely fascinated me was not so much the, any flowers that grow th grew through it was um, the crickets I had crickets jumping around in my, my grass and 
the first time I saw them, I was so surprised. I actually got, right, what's this jumped out at me? But it was crickets. And I was like, oh, I've never had crickets before. Um, it was my main problem because I'm a bit lazy when it comes to cutting my lawn at home as well. So I've probably been doing the no more May thing for years now. <laughs> Unintentionally. Um, but I had... Um, some early purple orchids yeah. and a spotted orchid appeared on my lawn a few years back. They just appeared out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that kind of restricts my cutting. I've been avoiding cutting them. Then, so. um, Amazing. I, the orchids are like that, don't they? They consider to be dormant for ages and suddenly something pops up. And, um, yeah, it's a, that's a very special gift. I I, it really like was. I've only ever seen orchids, wild orchids, in this area once before, and to suddenly have thirty on my lawn was yeah, wow. Just oh, wow. I, I thought when you were saying an orchid, I thought one or two steps. And well, it's like a field. First year, I think there were five or six, and then there were about a dozen the next year, and then about thirty. You have uh, a little reserve, nature reserve, James mm. Nature Reserve. <laughs> Fantastic. Angie? Well, I have um, naturally been a no-mow mare for many, many years too. So I, I leave, I haven't cut my, I have a little bit at the back, it's not a large area, but um, I haven't cut that for a while. And um, mainly dandelions and dock and what else, lovely bits of moss and yeah, <laughs> daisies. Um, but I just I'm fascinated by the the dandelion actually, and I do eat the leaves. So um, a very nutritious plant indeed. So I do. How do you prepare the leaves, Angie? Oh, um, so when the lovely new leaves, so they've got a wee bit of growth to them, I just pick them freshly picked from the garden in your bare feet if you can, because that's essential too. <laughs> and then just give them a good wash, and then just pop them on your salad excellent and what, what do they taste like mm, you'll have to try just a really um they've got quite a strong flavor actually but they're just a nice addition to a salad bowl and i haven't tried this but you can get the buds and and um do them like capers so i would imagine you just put them in some kind of vinegar i haven't done it yet and then taking the buds encourages more flowers to come through as well so i'll have to try that and let you know how that goes like angie i'm quite a fan of the dandelion and its many uses <laughs> yeah we make we also make a um a brew for the garden like you would with comfrey um and it's really good for um, so is that so just putting leaves in the in the water and letting it basically rot away and decompose yeah. and then yeah. using that as a fertilizer. And comfrey, nettle and dandelion, between the three, they cover all of the nutrients that the plant needs. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Need to get a recipe for that. Yeah, just take the leaves, yeah. put them in a, a bucket with some water, let them ferment and then take the juice and mm -hmm. dilute it about one in 20 and away you go. Easy peasy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pauline, do you have a favourite lawn wildflower probably just a daisy and other than making chains i don't do anything else with it and it's a long time <laughs> i've made daisy chains yeah that's a, that's a lovely sort of childhood memory isn't it daisy, yeah. daisy chains because there's this astroturf 
trend, lots of people putting an astroturf in. And the guy was asked, how can you convince somebody not to put an astroturf in? And <laughs> he said, well, you can't make a daisy chain out of astroturf. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Which I was a very good argument. Absolutely. It's such a positive childhood memory there, um, playing with the flowers. Now, daisies. One, two, three, four. Beautiful. Okay. Do a bit systematic. Four. Five, I think six, this one's seven. got more dandelions and daisies seven. as a general thing. I've just moved into a new home during the during the second phase of lockdown over at Arbroath and the, the real highlight of the garden was when we first moved in there was a hedgehog and we just it, it within the first night we'd moved in and we were sat there just look you've got all these boxes and having a cup of tea and looking at half of them are outside the house sat on it and a hedgehog just came out from underneath a pile of leaves walked out uh, across the drive onto the lawn, did a big circle, went back underneath the leaves. It was obviously working out, who's this that's moved in and disturbed my habitat? It's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Is it still there, do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. still yeah. there. Yeah. And I inherited a house which um, had had uh, um, a, an elderly couple in who'd gone into an old people's home, and, and the garden was minimally mowed once a year for three years. Wow. So uh, it, it looks like the lawns have never had any herbicides and pesticides on them because they're full of of um of diversity and actually what's interesting is we've got no rye grass in the lawn so it suggests that it's a very old one it's actually full of things like agrostis these very fine leafed grasses um and uh, and fescues so it's so, telling so me I that, take it um, rye grass is something that's more of a commercial lawn yeah temporary lawn species. again Ryegrass was first introduced in as part of the improvements in the 18th century, together with clover, as a way of um, increasing the productivity from a unit of land, which could then get fed into cattle. So if you think cattle used to browse in woodlands, they then fed on wildflower-rich um, meadows, and now we feed them on grass and clover. It's completely we've completely changed their diet over three hundred years. But the, but in terms of that, um, uh, uh, our lawns we took ryegrass is hard wearing. It's, it grows rampantly. It's it's what we we call an aggressive plant in the community. So it will outperform and outcompete all the others. So one of the things we have to do if you wanted to, to create a meadow at home is find a way of taking some of that that bigger out so after you've not mown in may and then you mow in june or july or even if you leave it a little bit longer say you move july august september one of the things i'd encourage you to do if you enjoyed your meadow is to in, to introduce a hemiparasite called yellow rattle Ooh. because that will take the vitality out of the grass uh, the rye grass and it will encourage other patches to open up that wildflowers can come into uh, what is what is a hemiparasite so uh, if you think about uh, plants, uh, we, we think of, when you think of about a plant, you think green, chlorophyll. And chlorophyll is allowing the plants to intercept the sun's energy, to excite uh, it, the, the water molecules and split them. And then we grab some carbon dioxide from outside. Okay, that's very science. It You're getting sciencey. Yeah, <laughs> and we turn it into sugars. But will a hemiparasite has has some of that capacity but what it also does is it latches on 
like a vampire to the grasses and to clover interestingly rye grass and clover it really likes and it will uh, feed off the sugars the excess sugars that they produce and it so it doesn't kill the plant but it parasitizes it in a way that it it, um, allows uh, some of the uh, sugars excess sugars to feed itself and that that reduces the vitality which is it's perfect. It's what we want, isn't it? Yeah. So you're talking about a vampire plant now. Um, it yeah. brings to to mind some horrific images. Can you maybe describe what it looks like? So it's oh, it's growing it's a, vampires in your lawn. Now this is a beautiful um, uh, flower. It looks a little bit. If any of you know your uh, nettles and things like that, in terms of the flower, but it's much bigger. The white dead nettle, um, and it's it's yellow, but it's very short. It's um, uh, and when it when it turns into seed, the the little pods rattle. You know, they, they, the seeds rattle inside this box. Hence its name. And you can often find it. It, it used to be considered a weed of grassland, um, and now now it, it's being. Uh, it, it, you can find it in the very best meadows, like Optimate Common over in Fife. Has a oh wow! So if you rattle. want to do a, a have a look at a good yeah, have a look. Uh, That's meadow, a good example. Um, Common is the place to visit. Yes, excellent. Have you had any sort of favourite moments apart from finding the delight of not having ryegrass in it, um, watching wildlife or watching the plants? Um, I've actually got. Uh, five different types of dandelion in my garden and it might sound like something which people go oh gosh dandelions are really weird i just uh, leave it but what's, what's again fascinating for me dandelion is a group which um in the british flora it, it's it's uh on the edge of change and it's uh, creating all of these different it's radiating out all these different types of dandelions and there are literally um tens if not hundreds of them and people keep on naming and splitting more and more i'm really impressed given that you can tell them apart because yeah it's really impossible but you're an expert (laughs) yeah no no i I can't tell all of them apart but what i'm finding this this at this time in my life and this time in my botany is giving me the opportunity to actually spend a bit of time looking at them so and and what i'm doing is is looking at the, the the red tip on the sepals that fold back, that that give me uh, underneath the flower, tell me that's the earliest flowering of the same dandelions. Thing, Kevin. Yeah. The same thing. <laughs> and, uh, and now I'm just watching the changes through. So when when people think, oh, that's that's the same plant flowering through the season, they've probably got more than one type of dandelion in their own garden. I'm seeing if I can actually keep keep them. We we used it, to when I grew up in a country school, we had a wildflower. Kind, you know, like we used to pick a wildflower and write it in our book and identify it. Oh, yeah. And oh, in, in that lovely. time, I'm not kidding, we used to find there would have been about 50 different plants, uh, plants yeah. at that time. Wow. You know that I can remember writing, I mean, maybe even over 50. Quite incredible. At the end of No More May, Plant Life encourages people to take part in Every Flower Counts Citizen Science uh, project, uh, which is runs, I think, uh, last week of May. Are you going to be doing that with your community lawns? Yes, I still haven't actually signed up for it officially, but yes, we are doing it. It's a citizen science project. It sounds potentially complicated. So well, what, what do you have to do to, to take part? So you measure one square metre of your lawn and you count the number of flowers that are actually in flower on that lawn and you identify them. You can get a, a, an ID guide 
from plant life to help you and just lift them how many there are. You can do it in different parts of your lawn and ideally they want to measure the, the whole area of your lawn so you can then work out the average number of flowers in your lawn and work out how much is available. And I think they give you a nectar score for your lawn. They do, mm. yes. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, it tells you how many bees you can feed, honeybees. So that's going to be interesting for your project, uh, for, for your uh, hives so to see. Convince people not to mow the lawn in the community areas. Absolutely, yes, yes. So I'm, I'm really quite excited about yeah, this project. It'll be really interesting, interesting yeah. just to know and have something to back it up. That's great. Um, Angie, are you going to take part? Absolutely, yes. And at Plant Peters, he's um, signed up too. So a community gardener uh, in, a, in the garden, Peter. Yeah. So, so are we not garden. cutting the lawns in, in the garden this month? No. Fantastic. I'm glad no. to hear that. I think maybe just pathways, but there's definitely areas left. So at the end of the month, we could go in and do that citizen science bit as well and i believe that if you missed out on the end of may count there's another count in the end of july so if you get, continue to be lazy with your lawn you can do another count at the end of july i think um so um yeah obviously this podcast will be airing after the end of may so july count might be the, the first one you be able to um, get involved with. Um, so the, the Every Flower Counts, I think, has been running for two years or so. Um, have you looked in, at the results that they've had so far and what they discovered? I had a, I had a wee bit of a look, and I think what was interesting to me was um, some of the research through all the citizen sciences. Now, you know, they're now able to produce some information about what's best for um, best ways to to work with the lawn, to work with nature. So there was there's some bits about um, longer areas of grass having um, a more diverse range of species, but cutting the lawn every four weeks encourages more production of wildflowers. Yeah, I was having a look at this as well, and I think there was more nectar produced in the shorter lawn yes. as well because there's not as many or not as nectar-productive flowers in the longer grass as well. Yeah. Um, I love that they call it um, Mohican lawn. So it's good that, that all this research is, you know, can help how you can maybe manage what you do on your lawns in future to support pollinators. Is there any sort of advice on how often the lawn has to be cut? I would recommend monthly. <laughs> and if you can leave a patch of long grass on the longer grass the Mohican style that seems to optimize the nectar production. We're still very addicted to lawn mowing it might just be that we can encourage them to raise or lower the wheels so that we've got longer grass so they can still get their fix of cutting the lawn but it might just be that we can encourage longer grass as well. It's, it's um, an activity that even the, the addicted lawn, mower, lawn mowers can get involved in. Last year um in the every flower counts results because of the drought in May, they found it impacted the species that were actually growing and it impacted throughout the rest of the year as well. Um, with some species flowering much later than they normally would and some um, just kind of missing out completely really because of the drought. So. We talked about dandelions earlier and that they're very important species for nectar 
as a source for nectar for bumblebees, my favorite, <laughs> early, early in the spring because the queen bumblebees emerge from hibernation and they need a feed to set, set up their nest and the, um, have their babies. So they're part of the important uh, food source in the spring. Uh, but last year, I think in that, in that study, they showed that it was 50% fewer, so half as many dandelions in the lawn because of the drier weather in the spring, which is a trend that, and that's happening actually more, more in Europe, but Scotland is being affected, especially on the East Coast, yeah. with the dry springs. I think May was the driest So there's going to be probably more of these extremes. So this delicate balance um, between the relationship between pollinators and flowers that feed them can be affected. And I think that's one of the reasons they're doing this um, every flower counts survey, because that can feed into understanding how climate change is affecting um, these relationships. And I mean, other surveys are out there, like the bird watch and butterfly count have very similar sort of aim to give us an idea of what, what's happening out there. I don't think there's very clear answers yet, but um, I think scientists are sort of looking into it anyway. Zero. Zero. What we're looking for? Zero flowers. <laughs> Zero open flowers, whatever kind. So nothing, really nothing. Can we not count the dandelions? No, zero. Partly not. Science, we're doing science here. Oh, Just say okay. zero. No more May is an example for rewilding, uh, I believe. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit what rewilding is as a concept and how this can be applied to gardens? Yeah, I, I mean, re rewilding is a, is a huge topic, and um, there are various groups in Scotland are trying to support the um, the natural processes which would happen um, before we'd introduced industrial scale landscape change um, in the 18th century. The they the um, at its heart, rewilding is about allowing those natural processes to be driven by the animals and by the climate and by the soil that you find in a landscape. However, um, yeah, so if you think about a, a, an introduction like a beaver into a river where the beaver will create dams and the dams allow um, water to be retained further up in that landscape than it would if it was otherwise just rushing out to sea through the, the straightened rivers and watercourses that we've created and the narrowed narrow channels um, to take it very quickly and drain land. So they would hold water back up and that creates a whole range of habitats around it, which, which plants and other animals can enjoy. Marginal wetlands, for instance, which again have been lost. I mean, we've lost a million ponds, for instance, since mm. 1900 um, across the UK again, as we've, we've cleaned up these landscapes and made them more productive. In our urban landscapes, rewilding is much more humble but the, the, the sentiment is it, it runs alongside these. We're not going to introduce mega herbivores, these big animals that would drive keystone species that, that drive the landscape change that I talked about with the beaver or with wolves or lynx or those big animals that you might, might hear. But what we can do is introduce the habitat, the edges. We, and it's edges where you get the most diversity between a hedge 
and a piece of grassland or between a, a piece of grassland and a pond. Those edges are where you find the most diversity. And actually, these small niches are very easy to create in your, in your garden um, or in, indeed adjacent to parklands or in our urban streets. So, so rewilding as a concept in our cities is about trying to encourage people one window box, one plot, one lawn, one street at a time to uh, garden a little bit more uh, for, for the native species that we would find along, living alongside us. I've heard there is some uh, rewilding going on in Dundee. That's right. Well, um, we, we've, um, we, we've, we've taken the mantle here. And uh, one, of, one of the things that um, coming into a botanic garden, I'm really lucky uh, that I work in an environment full of diversity. But we wanted to find a way of actually um, encouraging others to um, enjoy that type of space throughout the city of Dundee. And uh, at, the at the same sort of time as I was working out how best to do conservation work, looking at Angus as a wider landscape, trying to understand the catchment of the Tay, really big projects. Think, and, then I, and then I met a guy called Russ Avery, who had come up with a project in Hampshire, where he'd got together with his neighbours and said, let's rewild our avenue. And it's called Rewilding the Avenues. And um, he published a post explaining what they were doing. And I thought, this is perfect. And I reached out to him and asked, can we uh, work alongside you? Uh, but encourage that at a city level. And um, so what, what, what Russ has done is modified a logo for Dundee. I'm giving it away because it's not my project. It's everyone's project. And the idea is that um, what we would do is provide supporting information on our website and through seminars and workshops and talks like this to encourage people to try to do the right thing in a joined up way across the city of Dundee. So we've got the biggest landscape change to support wildlife in this area. That sounds uh, really exciting. Yeah. And I have to say that we actually do have a logo for Tayport as well. Yep, there you go. So, so that, we are um, yeah. we, at the moment thinking of ways of getting people involved in this. So if you want to um, uh, use that logo as a local resident here in Tayport, let us know and we'll send you a copy and um, let's join up and, and, and start doing similar things in Tayport. And I'm sure Kevin might um, be able to support us as well. Absolutely. We've got a web page about rewilding Dundee and on that we've got a link to the Tayside Biodiversity Action Plan and to a little booklet which is aimed at people in their own gardens telling you which is the best things to do in this part of the world. I just thought um, we could talk about, you know, how important really can gardens be? They seem to be so small uh, compared to the vast landscapes around us. Is there any evidence that they can be important in helping with the biodiversity loss? And how much of a difference can a few rewilded lawns yeah. really make, basically? If we want to make a contribution, it seems, you know, at a humble level, one individual can't change the world. In fact, it's by one individual joining up with everybody else trying to change the world that we can make a difference. And there's some really good work that's been done over the last 20 years at Sheffield University, where they've been trying to work out the value of, of our collective efforts in our gardens for wildlife nationally. And what they've worked out is that the very best nature reserve in the country is collectively our gardens, wow. better than any of the triple SIs that you've got out there. And I think that, 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 that tells you an awful lot about the importance of each of these little plots and the work that you can do at home.
it, it makes a difference. It is making a difference. It's probably been the, the refuge for a lot of the wildlife in the UK up to date since, since we've seen these large changes of land, uh, land use and intensification in, in the wider landscape by, by agriculture to, to feed us. So please, you know, don't put your front lawn over into a car park. If you have, try to find a way of clean, claiming some of it back, even if it's a patch of gravel growing some really nice pollinating plants in there that bring you a smile, but also bring it, do something for nature. Put up a window box or think a little bit about if you've got a back garden, maybe putting a pond in um, that will bring wildlife in closer to you. And yet, oh, not a bee, not a bee in sight. Nothing, but um, there were bumblebees in the garden, so, um, and I saw lots of orange tip butter. So if we were oh, good. Um, on the way here, and St. Mark's flies, which are these dangly, horrible, oh. monstrous looking oh, things. Yeah, yeah, they just... We've been talking about biodiversity loss and how serious that is, and that's mostly really about the habitat loss we would. Um, talking about converting meadows to um, either grain producing fields or, or pastures, um, for example. But um, also amongst the climate emergency. And so I wonder whether you could um, tell me whether uh, our pollinators and wildflowers are being affected by changes in climate already or what they might yeah. be affected in, in the future. And what is the role of the gardens in that? Is there sort of evidence that we can help out? I'm obviously not an entomologist. So although from a plant perspective, I've had a lot to do with pollinators over the years. I know that my colleagues at James Hutton Institute and in the plant sciences who are looking at crops are really worried about the uh, pollinators. Um, the decline in pollinators globally is one of the biggest threats to us for our food security. So it's not just in this country, it's everywhere where we're seeing the impact of climate change. And this is specifically about climate change rather than land use change. Yes. Um, and what, what we're seeing is that plants and animals have grown up in a very stable uh, environment in terms of our uh, this the last Holocene, in terms of the glacial period, has been quite a stable one. So we've seen thousands of years of co-evolution with insects and plants sinking their emergence to be to be available at the same time but that's shifted now so we're seeing insects warm up and uh, come into our gardens earlier in the year we're seeing the wildflowers stick to their uh, their day degrees so they're they're fixed on a, a timeline which is maybe uh, two weeks later so we haven't got that early nectar source for things like if you think about the queen bee that's really important early to have early pollinators we're also seeing later in the season insect activity go much further where we don't where we've got a cessation of those uh, plants in flower with nectar and pollen. So they're getting a bit of out of sync, I, I see. Absolutely. So the food source for the pollinators is not there when they need it. And yeah. in reverse, also the pollinators are not there to pollinate the plants and for yes. them to set seed. This is where the garden fits in, because not just encouraging you to know may and have uh, wildflowers in your, in your meadows, but garden diversity. They can extend the season of interest. And that's why the Sheffield study that I spoke about earlier has real interest because it showed that our, we've got more diversity within our gardens, which, which can sustain larger 
populations of pollinators in every square meter. They're a little bit like the old meadows that we used to have that we've lost over over the hundreds of years of, of um, improvement and then intensification since the Second World War. But they're refuges within our urban areas that could, when land use change happens out in the rural areas, go back out through their beetle banks and, in, and, and um, rewilded meadows. So uh, the important, important work we're doing. Yeah, and I, I see it's, I guess it's not just the wildflowers in the lawns, it's more the diversity of ornamental flowers and, and bushes and trees that contributes to that. So it's, it's yeah. a wider resource. Exotics are important. Um, why would you want to um, keep the wildflowers around, which are sort of seen as weeds? What what did they do that the exotics can't do? Well, I'm going to think about the effort that we put in. The wildflowers have adapted to the environment that we claim and turn into our gardens. So they were there first. Um, and if, if they're completely removed and you put them back, what you're helping is, is create um, the habitat where they would thrive. So they're low input for you. So why wouldn't you want to do it on that respect? They, they give back more than just their beauty because they are beautiful. They also give back in terms of supporting an abundance of wildlife locally, which will also give back to you because you can enjoy watching those birds and insects um, fly around in your garden and know that you're contributing in a positive way. But, but in terms of wider reason for keeping them, just because all diversity on the planet Earth deserves to be here. We shouldn't be in a position where we can judge one species and name it a weed just because it's a wildflower growing in one place and say that we can let that become extinct. And we're at a decision crossroads for humanity with the wider ecosystem that we're reliant upon because these plants, these animals provide ecosystem services that support our social system. They not only give us well-being, they attenuate water, they hold back that water from going into, into our drains and keep it, uh, and, and then causing problems flooding downstream because of the way that we've created our um, social systems to work to feed our cities. But they also um, store carbon, and there's more uh, carbon stored uh, in our soils than there is in all the plants that we've got on the surface of, of the earth, but it's our plants that provide the organic matter that enriches our soils. So they're intertwined. So that's, uh, I think if I haven't given you a good enough reason there, I just say, just take five minutes out and sit in a wildflower rich meadow. And if you can't find one locally, we were just talking about this here. We've both traveled to the east of Europe to see the wildflower meadows that you see, still see remaining in, in Poland and Romania and you can sit there for five minutes and I, I trust me your life will be changed well no more may a perfect excuse for that well there's plenty i mean look at that that's uh, i can't remember what it's called in english it's called babka it's a plantain but yeah. it's a different species to the one mm -hmm. late, the, the mm -hmm. one with long legs mm -hmm. And we've got a nice clover too. Yeah. And there's yeah. some grass, different grass seeds here. Um, I wanted to finish on something um, that's slightly experimental. One of the things that I've been uh, trying to do is um, trying to imagine what our low-carbon future might look like when we solved our problems and the details and what 
what it's going to feel like, what it's going to look like, what it's going to smell like, what it's going to taste like. And I've stolen this little visioning exercise from the transition founder, Rob Hopkins. I would like to do a little version of this and allow you to think about uh, year 2030 and imagine we've created green spaces and gardens um, that are climate friendly, that are people friendly, that are wildlife friendly. And if you feel like it, if you could share a few thoughts about what it was like in 2030. That's a wonderful question. Thank you for that gift. Um, I've spent the last year on a deep dive trying to understand the Angus landscape. And so if I take you on that landscape and think back, but I take you from my garden, which is uh, has been unkempt for three years, <laughs> um, is teeming with wildlife. I'd like to retain that that wildlife, but be able to walk out of my garden past a newly made pond, which has got uh, tadpoles in it, um, and then walk out along the coastline past a field that is currently and has a very narrow strip of wildlife around it, which then rather than just being crops sprayed with glyphosate is full with uh, wildflowers, not weeds. So the, the hum along the seaside is matched with the waves washing up. And as I walk around that field up into the, the riparian woodland that you find in the little streams going back up through, rather than just seeing larch and beech, I start seeing uh, sorbus regenerating and birch. And I walk up this into Scots pine out through the margins of heather, which are being fostered against these agricultural landscapes that currently go right the way up within a metre of the edge of these watercourses. And I'm seeing a buffer strip that I can walk all the way up through, Balgavy, um, Locks, up past Forfer, into the Angus Glens, and literally walk a landscape which is connected by corridors rather than fragmented. The taste from gorse, because I love the taste of gorse. It's a lovely salad crop, actually, and we much malign it. It's sweet. It smells of coconut and it's got a taste of almonds. And as I'm walking up through the landscape, going from uh, the seaside, picking up this uh, landscape plant that we used to put in as a hedgerow, um, but then seeing within it, it also protects from grazing animals. It protects things like birch and pine and oak from gr growing in amongst it. So it's, it becomes a nurse for this uh, woodland of tomorrow. So, so what I do then is I stand in this landscape, look out before me and see a landscape in change with much more abundance, much more uh, in sync with the nature around it. Still a productive landscape, but moving towards more perennial rather than annual landscapes, because within that perennial landscape, we will find much more benefit for us and for the environment. I felt abundance. So it was just like looking and there was so much more green and less grey. <laughs> and and the smell, you know, the sweet smell you get when there's lots of flowers, wildflowers. And so that smell and laughter and um togetherness, less isolation. So collectively working towards something that's worth fighting for. 
it's very interesting that you said you know the togetherness and the collective because I imagined a lot more people in this, these green spaces than there are now much more people and I, I was quite surprised at that I'm quite surprised mm -hmm. that, that disappeared but oh yes yeah, all the, this abundance of flowers and wildlife and the kind of swaying the, the grass the meadows swaying in the in the wind the breeze and yeah so it was just all very idyllic and lots of people and I presume hives everywhere. Absolutely. That's, <laughs> nice friendly edges. Friendly edges. That, that thought never came into my mind, actually. <laughs> just so, so much more colourful and, and many, many fruit-bearing trees. So the combination of, of all, just us three, putting that into the, the ether just now, doing that, that's wonderful. Amazing <laughs> what we can create when we think about it. And, and I, I, do, I feel very inspired, actually, much more inspired than what I was when I just left the garden. <laughs> wow, what um, wonderful visions of our rewilded future. And as usual, uh, if you're looking for more inspiration and information, please do check out the links to all the relevant resources in the show notes. And if you're wondering, Tayport Community Garden Nectar Score was F which means our lawn flowers can feed about 900 honeybees per day. This is a tad below UK's average per square metre, so we may need to look into making some improvements next year. I'm just looking out the window and it looks like the has cleared, so it's time to go out and uh, do a bit of pollinator spotting on my drying green while having lunch. Till next time, keep well. Thank you for listening to the Plant Voices podcast. For more Tayport Community Garden stories and for information on how to get involved, visit our website on www.tapodgarden.org.